wonder if we could turn to Ephesians and uh, chapter 3. <clears throat> the letter to the Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read from verse 1. I'm going to read it in the Jerusalem Bible uh, this evening. Before we read this, may I just say one or two things about this time. The burden in our heart over for these days <clears throat> was really for uh, a deeper and solid uh, teaching, uh, which we believe can only really come by dependence upon the Lord, and indeed, if our hearing is right as well. And one of the things we would beg of you all is to really seek the Lord earnestly for revelation. There are two things, really, we would ask you to particularly take hold of the Lord for. The first is um, uh, real revelation, uh, because what we're dealing with over these days is not just a light subject. Uh, it goes really to the heart of everything. And we know also that the enemy is very much against it. Uh, if he can just help it to get into us as a theory, he doesn't mind that quite so much. But once it dawns upon us, it's as if our whole lives are reorientated. Um, uh, not just for time, uh, but for eternity. And um, that needs revelation. The Apostle Paul once said, when writing this very letter, that he was praying for these people that the spirit of wisdom and revelation should be given to them in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. We need to really ask the Lord for revelation. And the second thing we need to ask for is that we may really be doers of the word. And this is one of the reasons we've set aside um, a room specially for prayer so that in all our fellowship, which we hope will be joyful and happy, um, there is one room where people can go in and be absolutely quiet. Feel quite free after gatherings to slip in there and seek the Lord. If God has been speaking to you and you want to get away and be quiet, there may be places in the garden, for instance, you can uh, get away uh, to as well and sit quietly. But take these times, don't let them just just be teaching sessions and no more. Take them really to the Lord and ask him to give you that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we'll uh, read in the Jerusalem Bible, uh, Ephesians 3 from verse 1. So I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you pagans. You probably heard how I've been entrusted by God with the grace he meant for you, and that it was by a revelation that I was given the knowledge of the mystery as I have just described it uh, very shortly. If you read my words, you will have some idea of the depth that I see in the mystery of Christ. This mystery that has now been revealed through the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, was unknown to any men in past generations. It means that pagans now share the same inheritance, that they are parts of the same body, and that the same promise has been made to them in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
I have been made the servant of that gospel by a gift of grace from God who gave it to me by his own power. I, who am less than the least of all the saints, have been entrusted with this special grace, not only of proclaiming to the pagans the infinite treasure of Christ, but also of explaining how the mystery is to be dispensed. Through all the ages, this has been kept hidden in God, the creator of everything. Why? So that the sovereignties and powers should learn only now, through the church, how comprehensive God's wisdom really is, exactly according to the plan which he had had from all eternity in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why we are bold enough to approach God in complete confidence through our faith in him. So I beg you, never lose your confidence just because of the trials that I go through on your account, that uh, they are your glory. This then is what I pray, kneeling before the Father from whom every family, whether spiritual or natural, takes its name. Out of his infinite glory, May he give you the power through his spirit for your hidden self to grow strong so that Christ may live in your hearts through faith and then planted in love and built on love, you will with all the saints have strength to grasp the breadth and the length, the height and the depth until knowing the love of Christ which is beyond all knowledge, you are filled with the utter fullness of God. Glory be to him whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory be to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. And now this evening we come to the first of these times. Vision, we've entitled it, What is God's Purpose? Vision, what is God's Purpose? We just bow together in the word of prayer. Lord, how we praise thee together that thou art with us. And how we thank thee for the anointing upon the head, our Lord Jesus, that runs down to the hem of the garment. We thank thee for speaking and hearing alike. Thou art sufficient. And we praise thee, Lord, that we believe in this time it will not just be a teaching time, but, Lord, a time of revelation. May the eyes of our hearts be opened in a new way, Lord. May we be brought to thy feet in wonder, love, and praise. Oh, Father, we give ourselves to Thee. We may all be lost in Thee. In my weakness be strength, Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This matter of uh, vision is absolutely vital. I don't suppose that really needs to be said uh, here this evening. Prophets are called seers. That is really literally what they are called, seers, people who see something. And the Bible, from beginning to end, is the story of vision. 
God breaking in again and again and again into human circumstances, into human lives, and giving a vision of his glory, a vision of his greatness, a vision of his purpose, a vision of his objective. I think if the enemy can stop us from getting saved, if he can't stop us from getting saved, then he will stop us from getting vision, of beginning to understand something of what God has saved us into. It doesn't matter where you look in the Bible, you will find that this matter of vision is fundamental to every single thing that God has ever done. Take right back in the beginning, Abraham. We are told in Acts chapter 7 that the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham and said to him, Get thee out of thy father's house, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. It was a vision of God. Not necessarily a literal vision, it may well have been that. But it is not necessarily that, for we are told in Hebrews chapter 11 that he went out and sought the city which has the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In other words, he saw something with the eyes of his heart. He came into an understanding of something which many Christians have not come into. That's the tragedy. Abraham, whilst under the old covenant, which by its very nature was inferior to what we have come into, saw in many ways much more than many believers today. And that's our burden. It doesn't matter where you turn, you'll find this matter. It was Jacob who wrestled uh, with uh, the angel, with the Lord himself, and saw the face of God and said, I have seen the face of the Lord, and I have lived. And he called it Paniel, the face of God. He was changed from Jacob to Israel, and Israel is the name which is passed to the whole people of God. Founded in vision. It was a vision of the glory and the power and the grace of God. Oh, we can think of Moses. Moses in the backside of the wilderness when he turned aside to see that great sight and saw a thorn bush which burned with fire and the fire burned and the bush was not consumed. That was not just some small coincidence. It was one of the greatest revelations God ever made to any human being. It was God revealing himself to Moses in a way that Moses could understand. What God was saying is, Moses, you are this dead thorn bush, and I am the fire. I am the glory. I am the life. I am the power. I am. Tell them. I am has sent you. It was one of the greatest revelations ever given to man. It goes to the very root of God's conception in the people of God. It goes to the root of God's conception in what we call the church. That we might be a people who are in ourselves nothing, but are a revelation of the glory and the power and the mind and the life of God. Oh, if we could only understand something of this matter. All the prophets were men of vision. Some of them actually called their prophecies the vision. For instance, Nahum calls his little book the vision of Nahum. 
Others call it the visions of so-and-so. They saw something. It wasn't just that they saw some parables, some pictures, even literally, but they saw through to fundamental principles, things that govern the whole work of God. Oh, how much you and I need to be people of vision. When we come to the Apostle Paul, of course, he summed it all up in wonderful words when he was before King Agrippa. He said, Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. It was that vision which mastered Paul from the day he was converted on the road to Damascus to his very last day on earth. He was mastered by vision, a man of vision. He had such a, 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 a panorama, as it were, before his eyes. He saw so much. Of course, we've got it in his letters. Now, if we turn to Proverbs uh, 29 and uh, verse 18, we read well-known words, I think, to most of us. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. You see, in your Revised Standard Version, it says, where there is no prophecy, people cast off restraint. Or the New English Bible says, where there is no authority, the people uh, break loose. Uh, it's a difficult verse, but the Hebrew word for vision here is just simply, its root is simply to see or to behold. But it has the thought not only of seeing something, but of teaching something, of the Word of God. And you'll see this if you will turn back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the Word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no frequent vision. There was no frequent vision. So this matter of vision is also connected with the Word of God. Uh, we need to understand that in all this matter to do with visions, that they're always connected with the Word of God, always the explanation of the Word of God, always the interpretation of the Word of God. We have to be careful of any vision that is extra to the Word of God or leads us in a way contradictory to the Word of God or away from its principles. Now, that's just an aside. But the fact of the matter is this. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And the word perish is a very interesting word, also in Hebrew, because it means to uncover, to be uncovered, to unbind, for instance, to unbind a headdress, to unbind long hair and let it down, um, to be naked, uh, to, to let loose, Break loose. And that's why you've got this variety of translations. Uh, one modern version says, where there is no vision, the people go wild. Uh, another one says, cast off restraint. I think that's the revised standard version and the revised version. The old authorized version says, perish. They're all different. But the idea is this, that where there is no vision, there is great danger. And we today must be very, very careful in all that God is doing, and he is doing wonderful things in our day. We have got to be careful that we are, we are, that we are people of vision. 
that we really are understanding the burden of God's heart, that we've got an understanding of the times in which we live, that we have some understanding of the will of the Lord as it is related to us in our day and generation. Now, that's our burden. Where there is no vision, other people go wild, break loose. It's the word, if some of you want to study these things, you look up in Exodus and uh, chapter 32 and verse 25. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain, the people had made a, a golden calf and were worshipping it, and it says he saw that the people had broken loose. That is the word. It's the same word here in the authorized version, perish, broken loose, cast off restraint, exposed themselves, got uncovered. Now, one of the greatest dangers whenever the Holy Spirit starts to move is getting uncovered. And the enemy's aim, once people begin to know something of the work of the Holy Spirit, is to push us out into a place where we're uncovered. So, here we have one uh, scripture which I believe is fundamental to all our times uh, these, in these few days. Where there is no vision, the people perish. We ought to take, I think, seriously the warning of church history. Church history, as I trust we'll see tomorrow evening, is full of the most amazing interventions of God. Again and again and again, when things have been darkest and most hopeless, God has sovereignly broken in by His Spirit and done a new work. Expressed and manifested his glory, not only to, but through a very weak, ordinary people. But church history has a serious warning. For every single intervention of God within a generation has died upon them. Has become just a crystallized institutional tradition. As much, of course, uh, we could learn again from that. But what we have to at least underline now is that vision determines everything in the end. Because if, by the grace of God, we can see the thing that lies on the heart of God, and by His grace alone, by the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit, do not deviate from that we shall be enabled by the grace of God to come right through to the end on course. Now, there are some gloomy prophets who tell us that no one has ever come through on course, uh, that the whole Bible speaks of even the greatest men who failed in the end. But we must thank God for the Apostle Paul. He was as weak and as human as any one of us in actual fact. He did some silly things. But uh, it still remains true that he could say to King Agrippa just before he was sent to Rome, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Later, in his last letter, before he died in 2 Timothy and chapter 4 and verse 7, he says these wonderful words which I pray God may be on our lips, all of us, when it comes 
our turn comes uh, to die. Uh, if the Lord, praise his name, doesn't come before and we're raptured. And then I hope they'll still be on his lips to us. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but also to all them that have loved his appearing. What a wonderful way to end. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I have fulfilled the ministry. He made his mistakes, but his heart was in the right place. He'd seen something, and what he'd seen mastered him. When we turn to Philippians chapter 3, I think we have a corrective to so much of our littleness. You know, most of us, if we, have, uh, if we see a truth, we have to expel everything else nearly that went before. So tremendous is the truth that we see that we can't contain anything else, and we think everything else is absolutely dead, only the truth that we're seeing at that particular moment. That's true of most of us, isn't it? I know that whenever I see a new truth, it seems to me that every single chapter in the Bible speaks about it. You know, I see it everywhere. I think, isn't that amazing? There it is, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. Isn't that true with you when you see something? But we are so finite. We have such finite minds and, 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 and hearts, spirits, that we can only really contain one truth at a time. That's why we need one another. That's why we need it. There's a tragedy of denominations in one way. They've specialized on different truths. We've got to get us all together. What a fullness we've got. That's where we need each other. But that's, by, again, by the way. Um, the fact is here that in this Philippians 3, we've got a corrective. There's none of this, well, now then, everybody, listen to me. I've been caught up to the third heaven and heard things uh, which is not even lawful for a man to utter. So respect me. I'm not going to tell you what I saw, but I saw tremendous things. I will tell you what I heard, but I heard tremendous things. None of that. Listen to the Apostle Paul. This is what this vision has done to him, this heavenly vision. He says uh, in verse uh, 7, Howbeit what things were gained to me, these have I counted loss for Christ. Yea, verily, I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of G of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, uh, having a, 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 a righteousness of mine own, uh, even that which is, I'm sorry, not having a righteousness of mine own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. What is this man talking about? Is he not a believer? How does he say that I may gain Christ? Isn't this the man that's already written the Roman letter, the first and the second Corinthian letter, the first and the second Thessalonian letter, the Galatian letter? Why, most of us will be opening Bible schools on that. <laughs> it's so tremendous. Just think of it. We say, oh, if I had all this knowledge, this revelation this man's got in these letters, just that, I'd, I'd go all over the world teaching, teaching, teaching. And I would say to everyone, just listen to me, this revelation I've got. I've been caught up to the third heaven. I've heard things it's not lawful for a man to utter, but I'll, I'll let you have what I can let you have. <laughs> but not this man. He says, I count the whole thing but loss, that I may gain Christ. 
that I may be found in him. Then is he, does he believe that you can be saved and lost? What is he talking about? He goes on, listen. Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, becoming conformed unto his death, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead, not the resurrection of the dead, from the dead. Not that I have already obtained or am already made perfect, but I press on, if so be that I may lay hold on that for which also I was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold. What a word. Isn't this man, isn't this man a saved man? Isn't this man a man with a real experience of what it is to be crucified with Christ and to know the resurrection of Christ in his body? Isn't this the man who said he got the sentence of death within himself that he should not trust in himself, but in God who raised the dead? Isn't this man who's seen triumph after triumph after triumph? Isn't this a man that's been given the revelation of the mystery hidden from, for ages in God? What is he talking about? I do not count myself yet to have laid hold. Some of us, we only have to get a real experience of the Spirit of God and we feel we've got it all. There used to be a hymn that made me shudder. Its last uh, verse was, And now I know it all. But you see, here is a man who's got a vision. He's got a vision of such, of such a range, of such eternal reach, uh, that he can never speak of himself as having it. And so he says, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before, I press on toward the goal unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And then he adds this beautiful little word, let us therefore, as many as are mature, be thus minded. Oh, how we need vision. How we need vision. The vision of God's eternal purpose. Now, let me move to a second point I'd like to make this evening. There is only one purpose of God. God hasn't got many purposes. He has only one supreme purpose. And if there are purposes, they are all related to that one great, all-determining purpose of God. Now, if you turn to Ephesians, Chapter 3, the chapter that we read together. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11. We read these words in the uh, authorized version and in the revised version. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Now, in the Revised Standard Version, those of you who have that version, you will see it is, this was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The New American Standard Bible has gone one better. And uh, this is how uh, it, it puts it in the New American Standard Bible. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or the margin says, formed, which he has formed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, there is an eternal purpose which God purposed in Christ. The word is just setting forth, setting forth. And indeed, it is the word used, the Greek word used, to translate the Hebrew word for showbread. The bread of setting forth. So this purpose of God has been set forth in Christ. It has been carried out in Christ. It has been purposed in Christ. It has been, as it were, realized in Christ. In Him and in Him alone we find the eternal purpose of God. He, He is God's new creation. He is God's new man. He is God's new world. There's so much more we can say uh, again on this matter. You noticed it in the um, uh, Jerusalem Bible, the way they have put this. It is this. This is how it is. That you may see how comprehensive God's wisdom really is, exactly according to the plan which he had had from all eternity in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, get this clear. Let every one of us get it. May God reveal it. God has had in his heart a plan from all eternity and it was in his son, Jesus Christ. That was his plan. He's had it from all eternity in his son. So there is only one purpose and it is all in Christ. It is in Christ. You ask us, what is the eternal purpose of God? What really is that eternal purpose? If you've been saved according to that purpose, if all God's dealings with you are in the light of this purpose, do you know what it is? Could you say in a sentence what it is? Supposing we were now to stop this evening and we were to give every dish out paper to every single one of you, and say to you, now, would you please, every one of you, write down in a sentence, what is God's eternal purpose? What is the eternal purpose according to which you have been saved? Could you do it? Now, many people say, oh, you can't expect me to put it in a sentence. But it, it is true, I'm afraid, that if you have to write an essay, you haven't really seen now, that may seem strange, but it is true. The more you have to write in this matter, the less you've really seen. When a person has seen something, they can be absolutely uh, lucid and clear. In one sentence, less than a sentence, you can, in fact, put down uh, uh, what is God's uh, purpose. Now, some people will say straight away, well, um, I don't know, isn't, isn't the important thing to be saved? That's the important thing, isn't it? 
Well, I always illustrate it like this. If you, if you have a car and you've got to get to Glasgow, there are people who say, now the important thing, the important thing is to have a car. That is the important thing. You must have a car. But there are other people who feel a little more than that. And they would say, no, 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 no. The important thing is you must have a car and you must have fuel. You must have power. But what's the good of having a car and the petrol if you end up in Exeter? <laughs> Some people say, well, it, the, the main thing is to be sincere. But we can be sincerely wrong. <laughs> we can drive in quite the wrong direction. Now, without trying to be critical or, or unpleasant, isn't it true when we look at Christian work, isn't it true of it? What the prophet Haggai said thousands of years ago, we are earning wages to put into a bag with holes in it. All the effort we put into Christian work, the activity, the meetings, the money that goes into it, everything goes in, but it all goes so much into, often into a bag, it's got holes and disappears. At the end, we don't know really what we're really doing. So much expenditure, so much energy, so much money, so much time, and yet at the end of it, hardly anything to really show. The fact of the matter is we need to be absolutely clear where we're going. What is God's direction? What is God's goal? Of course we need to have a car. We need to be saved. <laughs> of course we need to have petrol. We need the power as well. We need the power of the risen Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit if we're going to get anywhere. But then we must be absolutely clear as to the direction in which we're to go. And this is the whole importance of this matter of understanding the, the purpose of God. Well, what is the eternal purpose of God? Being saved? There is something bigger than salvation. Our salvation is tremendous, but there is something even bigger than our salvation. Our salvation is a means to an end, not the end in itself. Or someone says, getting others saved. Isn't that the purpose of God? Someone puts it a little better, someone a little more deeply taught. Says, well, I think it means we are saved to serve. Saved to serve. Wonderful phrase. And a true phrase. And he's absolutely right. We are saved to serve. What do we mean? What is eternal service, may I ask? Where are we going to serve? How are we going to serve? What does it mean to be saved to serve? Or someone who is far more deeply taught uh, says, well, um, isn't it that we should be to the praise of his glory? Lifted it clean out of Ephesians 1. Praise of his glory. But just wait. What is glory? What do we mean that we might be to the praise of his glory? Glory is not just Victorian splendor. You know, as we've got, we often get the idea of, of glory, that it's one of those great old things where everyone's singing, land of hope and glory, the band blasting out, and then the queen comes forward and pins a medal on someone's chest. And this is glory. 
But the Bible's idea of glory is not that at all. The Bible's, I, the Bible's idea of glory is something quite different. It's not just splendor. That's why I don't like the, uh, uh, is it the New English Bible, uh, which uh, translates this word, this wonderful word glory by the word splendor. It falls short of the whole meaning because glory in the Bible is always related to the manifestation of God. It's not just doing something, but something that God is, and even more wonderfully, it is related to people. The first time the glory of God ever touched the earth was when it came down into the tabernacle. And they couldn't even enter it because the glory of the Lord filled the whole thing. And at the very end of the Bible, we see the city of God, the, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. Now, what does all this mean, then? Are you all lost? <laughs> or have you been so far managed to follow us by the, by the grace of God? Well, now we come to these charts. And if you don't get lost, if you haven't got lost now, you will get lost <laughs> at this point. Um, you see, there is the most marvellous correspondence between the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. Nor was this correspondence ever designed by man. When John wrote down the book of Revelation, it never did occupy at the beginning the last part of the Bible. For at least three centuries, it was even questioned. It was only really in the fourth century it finally came to occupy its position as the last book of the Bible. Now, if you look at this chart, you will see the most amazing correspondence just between the first three chapters, if you don't get a crook in the neck, those of you here, um, uh, in the first three chapters and the last three chapters. In the first three chapters, heaven and earth. In the last three chapters, a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that's it. Time ushered in. Eternity ushered in. That's it. Satan enters. Satan cast out forever. Paradise lost. Paradise of regain. <coughs> Earth curse. No more curse. Adam and Eve. And now, here is a very interesting progression. Adam and Eve, two people. But at the end, a redeemed people that no man can number. <coughs> at the beginning of garden. And here is another uh, interesting progression. At the end, a city. The garden has become a city. A garden city, it's true, but it is a city. A, the garden has given place to the city. The beginning of the tree of life, at the end, the tree of life. The beginning, the river of life, at the end, the river of life. At the beginning, God walking in the midst of the garden once per day. He visited the garden and he spoke with Adam and Eve. But in the last part, we have God dwelling in the midst of his own forever, to go no more out. There is no temple there. There is no place where you can go and visit God. God is the whole thing, filling the whole thing. At the beginning we have, uh, first three chapters, earthly marriage, man and woman, in Genesis 2. In the last chapters we have a heavenly marriage, the lamb and the wife of the lamb. In the first three chapters we have pain, sorrow, death. Genesis 3, 16 to 19. In the last chapters, no more pain, crying, 
mourning or death. The former things have passed away. In the first three chapters, we have three materials. Now, to find these three materials, you have to follow the course of the river. And this is very interesting. If you look in Genesis 2, you will see that it is deliberately connected with the river. You follow the course of the river and you find three materials. Gold, precious stone, onyx stone, and you find a thing called bdellium. Bdellium. These three things you find in the beginning. At the end of the Bible, you have only three materials mentioned, out of which the, the city of God, which is not just a literal city, but which is called the Bride of the Lamb, out of which this city is produced. Gold, precious stone, and pearl. Some people will ask about the question of pearl here, bedellium, in Hebrew berdach, it just mean it's a name for a plant, although the rabbis of our Lord's time did always argue as to whether it was the pearl that is found in the, ri the river pearl that's found in uh, the river Euphrates and other rivers like that. The uh, Bedellium, however, is a plant, an aromatic plant, which when it's broken, it exudes a substance which dries very quickly into an opaque colour, pearl colour. So you have these two things. Then the big, during the first three chapters, you have the Spirit of God brooding. The word is, of course, the Spirit of God was upon the face of the waters. But it is literally hovering as an eagle, brooding. Like a, now, when an eagle is uh, hovering, as it were, on the face of the water, it's looking for something. It's looking for something. It's either looking for, 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 for something to feed itself with, or it's looking for a place to perch. Somewhere. But here we have the Spirit of God brooding, as if the Spirit of God could find no rest, as if the Spirit of God could find no inheritance, as if he couldn't find the thing that he most longed for. But in the last three chapters of the Bible, we have the Spirit and the Bride saying, Come. The very last, uh, nearly the very last, the end of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Spirit of God has finally produced something. The Bride. And so, as it were, the Spirit and the Bride say to all, Come! Come! Well, I hope that uh, you can uh, uh, understand at least that correspondence. Now, between these two, we have the Lamb slain and a fallen man redeemed. Now, somewhere between this and this, we understand the eternal purpose of God. I think it's even more remarkable because if we take the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation, we have the beginning and the end of a matter without the mention of the fall. It's only in chapter 3 that we have the fall that comes in, and in chapter uh, 19, 20, we have the end of that thing, as if the brackets are put into their place again. The whole thing of time. We have the first two and the last two chapters which completely correspond. Now, again, there, I'm afraid we haven't got enough space. You're, some of you can go and look at that chart. We've got the relationship of the eternal purpose of God to the redeeming purpose of God. There are many people who believe that the purpose of the Bible is the redeeming purpose of God. Now, I think that the eternal purpose of God, if we could so speak, is greater than the redeeming purpose of God, in the sense that it was his original purpose. And 
the redeeming purpose of God from the foundation of the world was, was that he might save a fallen man and bring him back into the original. So there you see, in that that's meant to look like a library of books in a sense, you have the original intention of God and the fall, Genesis 1 to 3, and the end, the original intention realized and the glory which followed, Revelation 20, 22. Then you have all the books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, <coughs> all the way through Jude, Revelation. And right through the whole, you have a three-fold chord. Now here is the three-fold chord which brings the original intention of God and its final realization together. The Redeemer, the work of redemption, and the Redeemer. And wherever you look in the whole of the Bible, you find that threefold chord. The Redeemer, promised from Genesis 3. The work of redemption. God slew evidently an animal and clothed them with skin. Remember, he would not accept Cain's sacrifice, uh, Cain's offering of fruit. Uh, you've got it everywhere. Now, if you can see this chart here. Um, um, yes, uh, just here is all, all I've tried to show you in this chart, you can come and look at it afterwards, is just how this purpose of God, the yellow line, is the eternal purpose of God, his original purpose. The red is the redemption. The brown is the fall of man. And so we find from the beginning, right up to here, if only things had gone, man had taken the tree of life instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would have gone straight on to the formation of the bride, the marriage of the Lamb, the city of God, and the ages of the ages. But he took up the knowledge of good and evil, and so began the whole terrible story of man that you and I know from experience. We're living in it. But we also have come by the grace of God, I suppose nearly everyone in this room, into the redemption of the Lord, uh, the salvation of God, through the seed of the woman, the promised seed of the woman, through the lamb slain. We have become the redeemed of the Lord, and now we are taken up through so great salvation back into God's original purpose. If, if there had been no fall, then it would have been just like this. The creation of man, the tree of life, that is, the receiving of the life of God into us, we would call it now new birth, betrothal, Union with Christ, that's the, really the same thing. Then transfiguration in glory, just like the Lord Jesus was transfigured in glory as the last Adam. You see, it wasn't a spotlight, as we often imagine, a spotlight of glory coming out of heaven, shining on him. But it was glory that came from within him and completely transfigured his mortal body. Now, if Adam had never fallen, he would have finally been transfigured in glory through the life of God in him. Through union with Christ, he would have been transfigured in glory and then would have gone on to the marriage of the Lamb. The betrothal would have given place to the actual marriage and the city of God and the ages of the ages. Well, now, I don't know. Do you get that? What then is that purpose? What then is that purpose? In one word, it is Christ. But more. Just wait. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus 
Ah, no. But just wait. Just wait. Praise God. It's not just Christ alone, but you and me in him. In him. So we have that wonderful little phrase which, which, which covers the whole of the New Testament. In Christ. In Christ. Everything's in Christ. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. My God shall supply all your need according to his glory, according to the riches of his glory in Christ. It's in Christ. Everything's in Christ. Where are you? You're in Christ. <laughs> you know where it says in, Reva, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, every, surely everyone here knows that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now why does it say on him? Unfortunately, in some of the very new Bible uh, uh, versions, they've obscured this wonderful thing. I mean, the Greek is a preposition of motion. So our original translators scratched their heads and said, Now, if we say, whosoever believeth in him, that's not true. They here believe in him over there. No, that's not true. When they believe, they believe into him. When they have saving faith, God takes them into Christ. And forever he sees them in Christ. Once you've been saved, once saving faith has been given to you, that moment and forever after God sees you in Christ, you are redeemed in him. You are saved in him. You are clothed with the garments of salvation in him. You have the garments of praise upon you in him. You are made powerful in him. You receive the promise of the Father in him. Everything's in him. Forever afterwards, it's in him. It's simply wonderful when you see it. Uh, it's all so simple. You see, we've got so complex. We try to think round and round in great long theological terms as to what the purpose of God is, and they get weightier and weightier and weightier. And in the end, you have to put an ice pack on your head to really understand the last phrase in the light of the first phrase of the <laughs> sentence. But really and truthfully, when it comes to it, the eternal purpose of God is simplicity itself. What is it? It is that you and I, by the grace of God, have been placed in Jesus Christ. That's why our translators said, well, we can't say into, it doesn't sound quite right in English. So they created a new uh, sort of phrase, really. Believe on him. Believe on him. They said, see, you've got to believe on him. You move onto him. You understand? And forever afterwards you're in him. That's why the Lord Jesus didn't say, now then all of you, always be striving to get into me. Those that strive to get into me and I strive to get into them, they bear much fruit. No, he never said that. He said, abide in me. What does abide mean? Stay where you're placed. Remain in me. Remain in me. Where God has put you, stay. Well, where has God put you? He's put you in the vine. He's put you in Christ. He's put you in his Son. Well, now, once you begin to see it, it's absolutely wonderful. It's not just a purpose of God is Christ alone. It is you and I in him, sharing with him in his glory, joint heirs with him of all that belongs to God. It's wonderful. We Christians should be the happiest people in the world. 
We're not always. <laughs> In Colossians 1 and verse 16, it puts it like this. For in him, that is in Christ, were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created through him and unto him. Isn't that wonderful? Or again, a bigger mouthful in some ways, to at least uh, for us to understand, in Ephesians 1, verse 9 to 11, making known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, that's in Christ. Now what for? Unto a dispensation of the fullness of the times. What? To sum up all things in Christ. Things which are in the heavens, things which are on the earth. In him, I say, in whom ye also were made a heritage. Now, isn't that marvellous? Really, when you think of it. <laughs> this whole business of the rapture is not just going to be that you and I are going to float upwards <laughs> and that somewhere up there we're going to see the Lord. Of course we're going to see the Lord. We're going to see his act body. We're going to see the marks in his hands, the marks in his feet, the, the, the pierced side, it's still there forever. We're going to see it, and with these eyes we're going to see it. But that's not the real meaning of the rapture. The real meaning of the rapture is this, that at that time you and I are going to be caught up together to be with him, to be the heart and the center of a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's so wonderful, really, when you, get, when you begin to see it. And you see, then we come right down to this. What really, to put it in simple terms, it is that you and I become part of Christ. Now, some people will meet it all. Can you say such a thing? Isn't that almost to take away from his glory? Isn't that to take away from his unique sonship? Well, it would be if the scripture didn't say so. But whilst we must always recognize the unique glory of the Lord Jesus, the unique position and person of the Lord Jesus, the fact of the matter is we've become partakers of the divine nature. It says so in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. We've become partakers of the divine nature. Christ has got into us and we've got into him. What happens when you have a meal? It becomes your flesh and blood. You eat an apple, and within an hour or two, the apples become flesh and blood. You eat a fish, and within a few hours, the fish is you. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you eat. You eat all these different... But in no time, you, you partake, you partake. Now, you say, oh, now you're taking it, you're getting fanciful. No, I'm not. If you want to put me to the test, stop eating. <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't mean for, the, for, for, for a fast. I mean, stop eating altogether and let's see what happens. <laughs> In about nine weeks' time, for the stronger ones, we shall have a number of funerals and quite a few before for those who are weaker. Because you eat to live. You eat to live. You partake. And as you partake, it becomes your flesh and blood. And that's how you live. Now do you begin to see what the eternal purpose of God is? That's why the tree of life, the tree of life, it had fruit. Fruit. Well, whether it's physical or literal, that's... Uh, to me, immaterial, the fact of it represents something. It represents the very life of God in Christ that you and I receive. We become partakers. 
Or again, I think of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Not just fellowship with his son, but the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm in him, you're in him. Now you begin to see how wonderful it is, don't you? Well, I do. I think it's absolutely marvelous. You see, this is how it starts. He's in Christ. 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 I'm in Christ. Is there, are there so many Christs? Has he got his own Christ? He's got a Methodist Christ. He's got a Baptist Christ. He's got a Pentecostal Christ. He's got a Neo-Charismatic Christ. He's got, a, he's got a, a, an Anglican Christ. Well, are there so many Christs? Or we better have you a Brethren Christ. <laughs> so now we've got, we've all there, we've all got our own little Christ. I'm in him. A personal Christ. Terrible phrase, isn't it? Personal Christ. But there's no such thing as a personal Christ. There's only one Christ. Now, the Christ he's in is the Christ he is in. And him, and him, and him, and him, and me. Now, what's happened to us? We're all in the same Christ. He's become a partaker of Christ. He's become a partaker of Christ. He's become a partaker. I've become a partaker of Christ. We've all become partakers of Christ. Christ is becoming our life. He's become his life, his life, his life, his life, his life, and his life. Now what has happened? I say, well, Christ is in me. He says, that's funny, Christ is in me. <laughs> just wait, just wait. He's in me. So he says, no, 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 he's in me. And he says, no, he's in me as well. Now what's happened? Is he in us at different times? Passes one to the other. No! He is so great that all the billions of believers in the whole of time are found in Christ. And the one Christ is found in all of them. Now, isn't that wonderful? No denominations, no labels, no names, no particular tenets which divide, no middle walls of petition. The whole thing's gone. But in Christ, I find that that is one of the most wonderful things in the whole Bible. And what is the purpose of God now? Well, it's uh, uh, that uh, you and I might be saved, uh, that we might be built together, that we might learn from one another, that we might let, let the Holy Spirit discipline us, shape us, fitly frame us together, knit us together, get us to grow up into him as the head. Do people honestly think that somehow or other, in the twinkling of an eye, crabby old Christians are going to become sweet saints? <laughs> but in many places where I go, this seems to be the idea. You can be as crabby as you wish, but in the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed. <laughs> Where does it say? It says that in the twinkling of an eye, your body will be changed. Personality is personality. Now, I'm not going to say that if you're crabby now, you're going to be crabby for all eternity. <laughs> May the Lord preserve us. But what I am saying is this, that the whole question of rewards and positions and everything else in the kingdom of God the city of God, our place in the city of God, is all determined by the amount of material which God can produce in us now by the Spirit. What is that material? Gold, precious stone and pearl. Gold, so, so fired, so refined, 
that it has a gold that no one has ever seen on this earth, you can see through it. Precious stone, which has been produced in the dark places of the earth by tremendous pressure being exerted upon them with fire. Pearl, which is produced by a piece of grit falling into the softest, most sensitive part of a clam so that it excretes a substance out of its inner light which goes round to try and expel the grit. And round, but the grit stays, so it does another and another. And another, just like the Apostle Paul, a thorn in the flesh. And every time he said, get rid of it, Lord. The life came out and he said, I'm going to stand against this. Get rid of it. Out with it, Lord. The Lord said, no. My grace is sufficient. And so a coat went round the grit. And another coat. And another coat. And a pearl. The city is made out of gold. Its foundations are made out of precious stones and its gates are each one a pearl. Dear child of God, is the gold of Christ being produced in you? Jesus said to the Laodicean church, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire, that thou mightest become rich. Is there precious stone in you? God promises, I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Do you know anything about the pearl? <coughs> the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Dear child of God, these things, these things we've been talking about, are not just some wonderful ideal, some glorious, glorious theory, but it's something which the Apostle Paul somehow took to himself in such a way that it took him right through imprisonment and execution, which took those early believers into arenas so that they were able to die because all they were worried about was material for the city. And here we are, some of us Christians, we don't know the first thing about these things. For this, this is all such deep things we think, oh, I've never heard that. I'll tell you this, Abraham's whole life was spent for this city. His whole life was spent in anticipation of this city. And what does the writer of the Hebrews say? He says, and they have not been made perfect without us. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Isaiah, all of them, God held them back and said, no, I have a great multitude to come in from every nation of the earth. Oh, how wonderful. How really wonderful it is, and how we need revelation. And what is the church? Isn't the church just those who are in Christ? And isn't a church just those who are in Christ? Forget the institution, forget the organization, forget all the other things. It's only those who are in Christ. And isn't the whole purpose of the church that we may be built together, fitly framed together, may know discipline together, may share Christ together, may love Christ together, may somehow or other open our arms to a dying world that they may come in and find the living God 
through us and in us. I don't know. I can only say that the purpose of God now is that. We'll say a bit more about its practical outworking uh, tomorrow, but may I end with just one thing. What about the purpose of God in the future? You see here, uh, we enjoy doing this. <laughs> you see? Arrow. It's an arrow. It's going on. Some people's idea of being a Christian is that you get saved, you get forgiven, and that's tremendous. And then you sing hymns, say prayers, read your Bible, if you're particularly good, <laughs> every night before you go to bed. And if you're very zealous, witness to others. And then, one day, you will die, and then you will go to heaven, and you will sit on a cloud and play a harp. <laughs> Singing a great choir, forever and ever and ever. Where do we get the idea? Of course! The ages of the ages is filled with song, filled with music. What are we going to do? Now, here is the thing that most deeply thrills me. We don't know. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not just being funny. It thrills me. It absolutely thrills me. I think it's wonderful of God. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. We don't really know what God is going to do. All we know is this. When we come to the last chapters of the Bible, we come to a wedding. Now, as we've often said, there are only two ways of looking at a wedding. <laughs> it's either the end or it's the beginning. <laughs> only two ways of looking at a wedding. It's either an end or it's the beginning. But in actual fact, surely it's both. It's the end of one whole phase and the beginning of another. And then we get it in Revelation 21. The voice of God says, The former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. Former things. It's as if God is waiting now. I'm speaking as if in a Sunday school way. But it's as if God is waiting now, itching as it were, to put the final bracket in. The first bracket began with the fall of man. The whole parenthesis of time. The whole, everything in the brackets is now. We're in the brackets now, in the redemption. We're here, you see. This is all the wonderful part in time. But God is just waiting to put the other bracket on and say, done, finished. So all the former things have gone away. Don't talk about them anymore. And if he sees anyone crying, he says, here. <laughs> <laughs> God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And then what is it? What is it? All we have is the most beautiful picture, which I think is known to every one of us. It is the picture of a newly married couple moving out into eternity. We don't know what they're going to do. We only know that they're one. They've found their home in each other. They're absolutely one. So wonderful is it that when the glory of God gets into the city, no one knows where the city begins and ends. It's one dazzling blaze of glory. 
It's transparent. There's no temple there. There's no place where you can locate God. He's everywhere. Well, what shall we do? People ask all kinds of questions. Shall we eat in eternity? Shall we recognize each other in eternity? Will we do this or will we do that in eternity? Oh, does it matter? The thing that matters is that we're with him. And if you've got to know him now, that really is the explanation of eternity. And I can only say this, I find God, if I may say it without being irreverent or blasphemous almost, I find God so exciting. So exciting. He's always doing something new, always surprising us. Once he does it this way, then suddenly he does it that way. And then you think, well, I've just got to know this. And he's there. <laughs> and just when you say, he could never do anything on, on Roman Catholics, he's doing it. <laughs> oh, he's so wonderful. Now, if God, who has created every single thing that has been created, and even in its fallen condition, it is so wonderful, Whatever will it be like when the whole, all the former things have passed away? And when God says, now we can get on with the job I originally intended. We don't know what the job is. Maybe it'll be the creation of new universes. We don't know, but what we do know, we should be with him. And it'll be absolutely thrilling. I feel so sorry for some Christians who've got the idea, uh, some, some unsaved people who've got the idea that we Christians have somehow or other got some small little gospel which means that you get sort of forgiven, make a decision. Please don't think I'm devaluing forgiveness because it is absolutely tremendous. But it seems we've put over the idea that it's just a question of making a decision and then you go to heaven and you lie on a bed for all eternity getting up now and again for a kind of hilarious time of worship. <laughs> we human beings have been made in the image of God. We've got the same creative genius in us as God. We can't rest if we're really human beings. We can't really rest. We've got to be doing something. We've got to. So the same with God. How wonderful. I can't wait. Uh, I really can't wait for it all to end. Can you? No wonder when these men saw it, they said, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Let's get the thing done, Lord. But you know, the wonderful thing is that in many ways, those who have for long been asleep in Christ, uh, uh, in his presence, but their bodies in the ground, they're in no wise going to uh, 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 come after us. If some of us were to die tonight, and others were to live to the coming of the Lord, at that day we shall all be together. Think of it. What a meeting. What a... It won't, it won't, it won't be a teach-in then. It'll be a glory-in. Or a glory-out. I don't know, but all I, all I can think of, just think of it. Paul here, and Abraham there, and Isaac over here, and Martin Luther there, and Zwingli, and Augustine, all of them together. What does it mean to be called according to purpose? I think it means something tremendous. 
What does it mean to see God's mind concerning his church? I think it's tremendous. May God give us revelation. And may he so help us that we shall, uh, with the eyes of our hearts, know him. Because in the end, it is a matter of Christ. It's not a matter of things. It's a matter of Christ. When Isaiah was in the temple one day, and I'll end with this, as he was worshipping in the year that King Isaiah died, he bowed before the Lord, I suppose, in worship and prayer and praise. And as he lifted up his head, it was as if he could no longer see the temple. So for one moment he wondered what was wrong. Then he looked a little more and he saw it was like a mist that obscured the whole temple. And then his eyes began to go up and up and up and up and up. And he saw a throne. And then up and he saw one sitting on the throne. And his train had filled the temple. Isaiah saw something that some of us haven't seen. The church isn't something in itself. It is Christ. To be the body of Christ is to be a partaker of him. Members of Christ and of one another. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we do need that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of thyself. We pray that thou wilt visit every one of us by thy spirit. Spirit of the Lord, touch us. May we see with the eyes of our hearts these things in a way that will, Lord, forever change us. See something, Lord, of the greatness of thy purpose. O Lord, hear us as we bow in thy presence before thee. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ.